Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Bookburners, Season 4, Episode 13. One. The wizard knew perfectly well that he was a pitiful figure. Everything about him spoke of being broken. His spine bent by the weight of time. The soft folds of his face and body marked by deep fingernail gouges. Not scars, just grooves where flesh was missing. The pitiful beard singed at the tips, the stained and threadbare clothing. Once he had been mighty, an inferno of power consuming all he desired. Now he was ember and ashes, abandoned by the world. Ingrid sat across from him, pouring thimbles of vodka. She had grown tremendously. The last time he'd seen her, she had been a small, eager thing, begging him to show her how he could make sparks from his fingertips. She had grown in many senses, in height, in confidence, in power. He pressed his thumbs into his eyes. So much time gone, wasted. And what did he have to show for it? Nothing. Decades gone in a blink, while he squatted in this hovel in the Yablanoi Mountains. Once she had treated him as a toy, or perhaps a jester, brought in for her sole amusement. She had always been an insightful child. Now she assessed him in the way that Antopov himself would judge and measure a knife. Was it sharp enough? Hot enough? Well, was he? Or had his glory been extinguished under decades of ash? No, there was still fire in him somewhere. After all, he'd once been called the Blood Count of Mongolia for a reason. He threw back his vodka and set the container down sharply. The liquor ignited something in him, some warmth, some heat. He drew on his frayed scraps of dignity to slowly coax himself toward who he used to be. How can I be of service? He asked. I hate to trouble you, Ingrid said. But I have some news to give you, and a favor to ask on behalf of my family. 
She was too cunning to spell out how much of a favor he owed the Engstrom clan, or perhaps more accurately, how much leverage they had over him. But they both knew. After his accident, some decades before, he had been entirely incapacitated. He had always cultivated a close friendship with Ingrid's great-aunt Zilla, and she was the harbor he had fled to. Zilla had arranged for his care all these years, such as it was. Well, nothing in life was free. You know I would do anything for you, he said, raising his cup in another toast. You have only to ask. Ingrid smiled politely and didn't return his toast. To be honest, I'm doing you a favor as much as you're doing one for me, she said. There are some people in London troubling us lately, and one in particular I think you would like to know about. She leaned forward, the curve of her lips as deadly as a scimitar. Uncle Yori, I have reason to believe that you once met a woman named Grace? Laundry is stupid. Grace said, with as much venom as she might otherwise have reserved for murderers, demons, or the agony of watching the people she loves speed age around her. She crouched in front of a washing machine, watching a collection of undergarments tumble in the suds. If I wanted to do laundry, she said, I could have been a farm wife in China and died 40 years ago. But here I am, washing clothes, with water and soap. Sal looked up from her bench across the laundromat. She'd been leafing through a celebrity magazine they'd found that somehow dated to 2003. The toothy blonde on the cover was captioned Hillary Duff, and Grace was moderately sure she'd never heard of her before today. Something wrong? Sal asked mildly. Grace turned her attention back to the spinning laundry. It wasn't that the labor was particularly backbreaking or difficult. Laundry now was a far cry from the day-long ordeal it had been. No more stones or washboards, no more crouching in a river until your hands and back cramped up. Not that Grace had ever done that, either. Even then, city people with enough money sent their laundry away for someone else to deal with. It was the only civilized way to handle it. And later, in the Vatican, the nuns had handled her laundry and other personal tasks. She'd been a tool, a weapon, not to be wasted on menial chores that anyone at all could do. She'd grown accustomed to that frictionless existence. I can't believe I'm wasting hours of my candle watching someone else's underwear get wet, all because Liam had to go, and even as she said it, Grace knew this wasn't fair. The laundromat they used to send all their laundry to had been destroyed, to be sure. But Liam had vanquished the demons that were responsible, and the owners were planning on rebuilding. Liam hadn't put the demons there. But in the meanwhile, the team still had laundry to do. There weren't any laundromats in weird London that stayed open anymore, and none nearby that did wash and fold. Many of them had problems. Machines where the laundry that came out had no resemblance to the items you'd put in. Machines that turned all the clothes into paper, or ate lacy holes in them, or where only the left half of each garment had shrunk three sizes. And that was even without actual demons nesting in the wash tubs. The team had ultimately decided it would be more efficient to take turns doing this chore for each other at the closest place left, not so close, but tolerable. And this week, according to their perfectly fair and equitable rotation, it was Grace's turn to do it. Sal grimaced. You don't have to do this, Sal said. We all know that, that your life is burning away minute by minute. But if you keep going like this, you're gonna die. Not soon, exactly. 
but sooner than she had to. Most people didn't know precisely how long they had and used and wasted their time in haphazard fashion. But Grace had a choice. She didn't have to waste a second if she didn't want to, and she had chosen to burn. Sal hovered behind Grace now, not wringing her hands, but definitely occupying that emotional space. Grace, you know I can do the laundry. Why don't you go back and sleep? It's fine, Grace said through gritted teeth. It's just that this is so tedious. Like washing dishes or buying groceries? Yes, you get it. Grace threw her hands in the air in exasperation. How did people spend their lives this way? Sal appeared to be trying to formulate a response, but her phone buzzed before she had to say it. She pulled it out and looked at the screen. Mm, shit, Asante wants us to come home. There's an emergency. What about the laundry? Grace asked. Sal sighed. Stop the machines, I guess. We'll have to take it home wet and finish it later. The rest of the team was already in the school library before Sal and Grace could make it back. The pair threaded their way through Asante's stacks of books and research materials toward where the others were gathered. Asante had pinned up a series of charts and diagrams on easels pulled from the art room. She stood before them now, marker poised in the air as she compared them to the notebook in her hand. Manchu and Perry had their heads together in some quiet conversation. Liam was sitting by Francis, looking like he wanted to talk to her but couldn't think of anything to say. Francis just watched Asante writing. Asante turned just as Sal and Grace sat down. Ah, you're here. What took you so long? Laundry, Grace said. We got back as fast as we could, Sal added. She twisted in her child-sized seat to try to get more comfortable. The library had only a very limited quantity of adult-sized chairs, and nobody ever remembered to take another one from the classrooms until it was too late. What's going on? Grace asked. Her gaze was fixed, her attention sharp like a hunting dog pointing to its prey. A storm is brewing, Asante said. We have a lot of work to do. Sal nodded briskly. Okay, we'll track it down. What do you have so far? Is it a book or it's not a book? It's not a case. Not like usual. Asante nodded at the trio of easels surrounding their reading nook. Sal looked closer and realized they were maps of London, annotated with an impenetrable forest of thumbtacks, string, and sticky notes, covered with tiny, dense handwriting. Magic has always had currents and doldrums, Asante said. Once in a while, we'd see a problem where too much magic had built up over time. Mostly harmless, uh, spontaneous combustion, lights in the sky, strange cloud formations, nothing to worry about. But, Sal asked. She became aware that her shoulders and back were banded as if with iron, and she tried to loosen them. Sometimes things wake up or crawl through, Manchu said. Or maybe the people and animals caught inside became monstrous. It's an academic distinction. Asante shook her head and the beads in her hair murmured like rain. I still don't entirely understand what Hana did here, she said, but it's completely changed the flow of magic across the world. And I'm seeing a, for lack of a better word, a tornado. I've been tracking it over the Atlantic for weeks, but it's just now become clear that it's going to touch down in North London. Asante tapped on the map. Liam shifted uncomfortably, but Sal spared him no pity. At least he'd scored a grown-up seed. When you say a tornado, what you mean is monsters, Grace said. We get to fight some monsters. Asante traced a cluster of streets, 
This neighborhood is going to be the nexus of the storm. Fortunately, the worst of it only has a radius of a few blocks, because we're going to need to get anyone and everyone out of there before it starts. I've heard reports of other storms in other parts of the world over the last few weeks, but nowhere that was already as heavily compromised by magic as we are here. I don't think the world has ever seen anything like this before. It's going to get ugly. I'll try to talk the city into evacuation, Sal said. How long do we have? Asante sagged. About five hours. Sal stretched one more time and then gave up. Tension was just part of her life now. We're on it, she said. I'm going to try to prepare some things that might help us stabilize the situation, Asante said. I've been looking at the book the maitress gave me, and I think I'm close to figuring something out. And if it works, well, it's never a bad idea to have new weapons in your toolbox. Sal nodded. That sounds promising. Liam, stay here with the R&D squad while Asante tries to sort this out. And Menchu and Grace will come with me to talk to the police commissioner. And you can meet us at the site later, maybe half an hour before showtime. Right? She felt a little awkward as soon as she'd finished speaking. There she was, taking control and bossing everyone around again. But nobody seemed to mind. Sounds like a plan, Liam said, nodding thoughtfully. See you there. Two. Sal strode toward New Scotland Yard, Grace and Manchu trailing behind. Metropolitan police were headquartered in the heart of weird London, and the British had steadfastly declined to move offices thus far. Stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on. It couldn't be worse than the Blitz. She wondered how the officers who lived outside the weird zone felt about confronting the strangeness every day as a normal and expected part of their work. And she caught herself because she did that too, and she'd become used to it fast enough. So had the NYPD. London cops would be no different. Across the river, the London eye still burned. The Ferris wheel had been damaged when Hannah's pet had tried to destroy London, but its original shape still sparked and smoldered in the air, even all these months later. Sal's vision swam between the wreckage of the old wheel and the corona of the magical one, and she looked away before the dissonance could give her a headache. The London eye had been cordoned off, and the attraction would probably never open again. The reminder pained her. She hadn't been able to stop this flood of magic and its consequences, despite her best efforts. But she wouldn't let it happen again. A flame flickered at the center of a pool at New Scotland Yard, and at first Sal wasn't sure if it was also magic. But no, the shapes were too symmetrical and the edges too smooth for it to be anything but man-made. Belatedly, she saw the lettering on the glass indicating that this was a memorial to fallen officers. She squeezed her eyes tight, squeezed her fists tight, and then she put her game face on. All right, let's make this happen. The three swept through the door and into the lobby, wearing as much competent confidence as they could muster. The young man staffing the front desk reminded her of a sapling, thin and green, with ears that would do a cauliflower proud. His name tag said Brannigan. Sal nodded briskly. We need to speak to the commissioner. Sal said, it's an emergency. Was she expecting you? Brannigan asked. No, Sal said, but this is an urgent situation. Brannigan's eyes darted between them, suspicious. I'm ever so sorry, but she's in a meeting. He mumbled into his mug of tea. May I take a message? We must see her without delay, 
Manchu said. Thousands of people are in imminent danger, and we have to... Brannigan shifted his arm just a hair, so his finger hung poised over a button on his desk phone. Are you making a threat against public safety? No, we're just trying to warn you. Sal Winston sighed. She didn't want to have to say it, but she knew what would get results. We're the book burners, she sighed. We know what we're talking about. Ha, you're not the book burners, Brannigan snorted. If you were gonna try to imitate them and pull a prank, you could have at least picked up a ginger to play at being your front man. Sal blinked. A ginger? Wait, could he mean Liam? She burst out laughing. Are you kidding me? You think Liam is in charge? I'll keep up on things, Brannigan said. He took a noisy sip of tea, but his finger stayed ready to call for help. Grace stared daggers into Brannigan's eye sockets. Watch carefully, she said. I'll only do this once. Now you see me? She flickered, and then she had Brannigan in a gentle but iron headlock, with his hand pulled away from his silent alarm. Now you don't. Tea streamed from Brannigan's nose and mouth. Grace, Manchu motioned for her to stand down, and Grace reluctantly loosened her grip. We are who we say we are, he said. I'm not sure how to prove it to your satisfaction, but it's vital that we- A voice came from behind them, flat and very familiar. Father Manchu. It was Corporal Shaw, a pair of adjuncts carrying stacks of paper trailing behind her. I could have happily missed seeing you, Shaw said. Her silver hair was uncharacteristically shaggy and a little stringy around the crown, like she hadn't washed it in two days too long. Sal suspected that the society was finding itself overwhelmed in this new reality, with magic washing up in a new place every day. And no Team 3 to help them stuff it into a closet anymore. You're here for the tornado? Sal asked. Shaw's eyebrows quirked up. Ah, huh, is that what you're calling it? Her surprise melted into contempt. I'm honestly surprised you're taking any interest at all, after- Manchu's voice was steady. We serve, Corporal Shaw, the same as we always have, though with different means than before. It's not your place to do that now. Shaw took an envelope from one of her assistants. It was beautiful, a heavy, creamy paper affixed with a bloody wax seal. I have orders for what to do if I come across any of you, she said. They say if I run into any of the former Team 3, then you're coming back with me so you can face justice for what you did. We won't go, Grace said. We don't belong to you, not anymore. Shaw praised her, and Sal genuinely wondered who would win if it came to a fight. You can argue you're not under the Vatican's authority once you quit your job, Shaw said. But Father Manchu was a priest. Look, let's not do this now, Sal said. You're not here for us, and there's something more important we should address. Shaw looked Sal straight in the eye, but didn't say anything. Sal couldn't escape the feeling that she was being judged for her sins, both real and imaginary. She bit the inside of her cheek, but she couldn't stop herself from adding to her case. Whatever you think of us, you should know that we won't stand by while the world burns. We can still work together, she said. You know we can help each other. Shaw considered this, though her fingertips ran over that wax-sealed envelope. You know I'll have to take Father Manchu in, at the very least, when this is done, Shaw said. Orders are orders. You can try, Grace said. Please, Shaw said, don't make this more difficult than it has to be. Maybe, Sal thought. Shaw isn't sure who would win in a fight either. 
Can we deal with this later? Sal asked again. There are more important things to talk about right now. Brannigan had acquired a mass of paper napkins from a desk drawer and about finished sopping up the puddles of tea from his desk. He hadn't missed a word, though, and Sal thought his ears should have grown about five sizes from listening so hard. Shaw stepped up to him. I'm here to meet with the commissioner, she said. I'm from the Vatican. Of course, Brannigan said. She's already expecting you. He looked sidelong at Grace. I, do you know these people, or? Shaw weighed the three of them again. The crease between her eyes grew deeper. Let them in, she said at last. The book burners have crossed one too many lines, but they do know what they're doing. Maybe they can help. They really are the book burners? Brannigan squeaked. Grace raised her chin. Told ya, she said. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. The conference room was bright and warm, appointed with natural wood tones and filled with copious light. It was a far cry from the digs Sal had been used to in New York. No fluorescent tubes or ancient linoleum here. London knew how to treat its police, or at least its top-level administrators. 
Shaw and her assistants had already laid out the problem for an assortment of police officials and city administrators. The weather pattern, the area of effect, the timing. Sal wondered how they'd learned about it, now that Team 3's orb back at the Vatican was practically a disco ball of constant flashing, but there were no clues in anything Shaw said about her sources. And they'd known early enough to get here in time, too. Interesting. Well, it wasn't like Team 1 had ever been dispatched by Team 3 in the first place. Perhaps they had their own version of the orb tucked away deep in their headquarters. So, this is going to unfold like the incident from last July? The police commissioner, Daphne Clark, was a brusque woman with majestic eyebrows and an otherwise elfin face. Right now, her eyebrows were brewing storm clouds. Not like that one, Sal said hastily. That was the result of a, well, a terrorist action. She ignored Shaw's eyes on her. This time, we're going to see something much more like a weather pattern. It's going to come and go on its own, but while it's here, it could do a lot of damage. We're here to help you minimize that damage. Shaw and Menchu nodded their agreement, though Shaw looked unhappy at the interruption. Commissioner Clark steepled her fingers. What do you propose we do, exactly? There was a map of London taped to the whiteboard. Shaw tapped ground zero, where Asante had said the tornado would touch down. Per our earlier communication, I already have my troops assembling nearby, Shaw said. We're getting ready to cordon off the area to make sure nothing dangerous gets loose into the wider city. Your personnel won't be equipped to deal with this, so you're best staying clear when the time comes. Sal stood, but before that, you also have to evacuate everything from here to here, Sal said. She drew a loose circle on the map with her finger, encompassing a few quiet blocks, mostly housing. This is where the worst problems will pop up. We have to get everyone out for their own safety, and we only have a couple of hours to do it. I thought you said they should shelter in place. Clark frowned at Shaw. Sheltering in place is fine for a regular storm, Menchu said, but less so when your bathtub might decide to devour your children at any moment. I see. Clark looked back at Shaw. You don't want to unnecessarily frighten, Shaw began. This is necessary. Sal said. We're here to save lives, not sacrifice them for the sake of keeping things quiet. That one landed hard. Shaw looked as if she'd been slapped, and her adjuncts shifted uncomfortably in their seats. The commissioner's mouth became a thin, flat line. Agreed. But how do I avoid a public panic? She asked. If I say a breath about magic after everything... She gestured toward the corner of the room, where there was a statue out of keeping with the ultra-modern decor and fittings. A statue of a dog made of terracotta. It was remarkably detailed and lifelike, Sal realized, down to each strand of fur and the pores on the dog's nose. Even the collar and tags were etched with a license number. And it was posed in an awkward position, tongue out and two feet up, as if it were turned to clay while running. Sal's heart lurched. This was no work of art. Surely it had been a real dog, transformed by magic at some point. Maybe even the commissioner's dog. She must be keeping it here as a constant reminder of what had been lost and what needed protecting. The most dangerous area isn't that big this time, Sal said. Tell them there's a leak in a gas main. It's an emergency and they'll leave, but it doesn't feel as terrifying as a giant crow battling a river dragon. So nobody will be immobilized from panic. The commissioner's gaze strayed to the dog again. Do you think they'll believe that? They'll want to believe that, Menchu said. 
You don't have to persuade them, Commissioner Clark. They'll do the persuading themselves. Shaw made no further argument, and Clark nodded reluctantly. Very well, I'll get my forces moving on an evacuation immediately. Let me know if there's anything else we need to do. She signaled to a few of her deputies and issued quick orders to begin organizing an evacuation. And listen to these people. They're experts on this matter, and I expect you to work closely with them. Her lieutenant nodded. Understood, ma'am. I'll get everything rolling. Have Wyatt cancel my appointments for the rest of the day, she told him. I'll meet you in the situation room in just a few minutes. Go on. The commissioner hesitated in the doorway before following her deputy out. I have one last question, if you don't mind, she said. Why us? Why has London suddenly become a magnet of this sort of event? It's not only you, Menchu said. They're just doing a better job of keeping it quiet in most other places. But that flock of mad geese in British Columbia, the sinkholes full of slime in Wyoming, they're not different. Shaw looked grim but didn't argue with him. Thank you, the commissioner said. That, that helps. She exited the room, leaving the Vatican emissaries and former Team Three alone together. Shaw pursed her lips and leaned back in her chair to look at the ceiling. Tell me, she said to the heir, when was the last time you heard from the archivist? My orders for her are even more clear than the ones about you. Sal and Grace exchanged a look. Machu's attention fixed on the grain of the wooden table. Shaw laughed without humor. So, you do know. And I'd bet the farm that she's here in London, too. Shaw waved for her assistants to begin packing up their briefing materials. We'll work with you for now. I know better than to bite a helping hand. But you certainly can't expect me to overlook it if you're aiding and abetting an active magician. And don't try to tell me Asante isn't doing magic anymore, she said. I'd like to think we all respect one another enough that you wouldn't lie to my face. Three. Asante, aren't you ready yet? Liam asked. He had a polishing cloth in his hand and was slowly working his way through a pile of tiny pawn shop crosses, each more tarnished than the last. Here in weird London, they didn't last long anymore. Even the ones that were pure silver and not silver-plated nickel turned black over the course of a few weeks, just from the ambient magic of the place. The process of cleansing them so they could be used again was increasingly time-consuming and of increasingly desperate importance. Almost. I just need a little while longer. I might be very close to figuring something out that would be a tremendous help. Asante burrowed through stacks of books and loose papers. If Comte de was correct in his analysis of the ebb and flow of magic, that means that there might be a better way to shield ourselves than toting around armloads of old jewelry. I just... Oh, I'm so close. Asante turned to Francis, who was busy filling flasks with a fluid that moved like melted cheese and smelled like earwax. Where is the book the matrice gave to me? Francis shrugged. Ask Perry? Perry sat on the floor across from Liam, eyes closed as if in meditation. Ordinarily, Liam would have resented him for slacking when everyone else was so hard at work, but the man-angel hybrid was looking really rough. Half his face sagged, and there were patches of cracked skin on his fingers that light shone through. That light pulsed now, pink like a sunset. Perry, Francis said. The book? Perry's nose wrinkled. Do you guys hear something? Liam listened. 
He did hear something now that Perry mentioned it. A scratching sound from down the hall. A pounding. A gorilla broke down the door. The animal was white as tallow, smooth and indistinct around the edges, and it gleamed like ivory. It was familiar, though Liam had trouble placing it. Jesus, fuck! Liam leaped out of his seat, unleashing a cascade of silver pendants onto the floor and dove for his silver-plated crowbar. Luckily, that was the first thing he'd cleansed. The gorilla paused in the ruins of the library door to size them up, then it loped toward Asante. Liam moved to block its way. A water buffalo followed the gorilla through the door, then a tiger, then a water dragon. None of them had hair, and their fine details seemed lost like they were figurines come to life. Maybe they were at that. Liam raised the silver-plated crowbar and took a swing at the gorilla. The weapon bounced off its surface and left a dent as if it were made of butter. He pulled the crowbar back. It was covered with streamers and droplets of wax. These things were made of soft wax. The enraged gorilla lost its shape. The blob rushed toward Liam, engulfing his striking arm, his fingers flowing into his mouth. The taste of wax filled his head. He convulsed to try to break free, but found he was trapped, struggling just to breathe through his single unblocked nostril. He rolled his eyes wildly to see what was happening in the rest of the room. Francis lit one of her flasks. The smell of earwax and brown sugar was even worse when it burned, and threw it at the dragon. It caught fire. The creature softened and bubbled, losing streamers of its body. The streamers flowed out of the room. A new animal came in to replace it, a rhinoceros. It hurtled toward Francis, bowling her over. The water buffalo had Perry cornered. Perry held up a crucifix in both hands. It was a massive thing, probably 200 years old, and meant as part of some cathedral's fittings. The buffalo tried to reach Perry without touching the cross, its form stretching in gentle waves. Asante grabbed a handful of Liam's crucifixes from the floor and threw them all at the buffalo. Wax splattered out of the animal like blood from bullet holes. It roared and dissolved, crashing over Perry like a wave. It froze in place, trapping him just like Liam himself was trapped. Liam renewed his efforts to free himself. The wax was still soft, and he could work his fingers free, but it kept reforming around him. While the others were fighting, the tiger loped around the room, sniffing at the books, Asante's notes, the people themselves. It knocked over furniture and rummaged through what it found there. Eventually, it roared and left the room. There were other sounds from elsewhere in the school. Banging, scraping. Things fell and broke. Liam tried to speak, but all he could do was bite and drool into the wax in his mouth. And then, with no warning, the wax flowed away, freeing Liam. He coughed and struggled, tried to grasp the animal and keep it pinned down, but it just passed around his fingers and back through the door. Alone once more. Asante, Perry, Francis, and Liam stared at one another. Their chests heaved from exertion and adrenaline. The whites of their eyes were visible all the way around. Liam opened his mouth and wiped out his tongue to try to erase the taste of wax, and Asante silently handed him a flask she pulled from her bottom desk drawer. He took a swig. It was whiskey, and a good one, too. He took another swig, then passed the flask on to Perry. Perry took a solid gulp. Their silence held for one more minute as they each surveyed the disarray in the library. The toppled chairs, the upended bookshelves. Then they all spoke at once. What the fuck just happened? Liam asked. They were looking for something, Francis said. Is everyone all right? 
Asante asked. Memory caught up with Liam. He had seen these wax animals once before, or something like them. They'd been trapped in Grace's memory of the day she'd been tied to her candle, and in her memory, there were creatures just like these. Grace, Liam said, her candle. He darted out of the library, down the hall to the room Sal and Grace were sharing, where Grace's candle burned. It was gone. Team One established a cordon around the place where the tornado would touch down, and despite Sal's worst suspicions, they handled the evacuation in conjunction with the Metropolitan Police without any argument. This left the book burners with precious little to do, for now, except worry about what would happen if Asante arrived. Team One had established a generous perimeter to catch anything that tried to flee the affected area, but Team Three, what used to be Team Three, had moved closer to the heart of the action. There was a traffic circle here with a fountain and statue in the center. Some man on a horse, hand upraised. It wasn't the heart of weird London, but there were signs that some weirdness had trickled in. The statue was furry around the knees. The postbox kept opening and closing like a mouth, trying to speak. The name of the wine store across the way had changed on the sign every time they looked at it. Sal didn't mean to watch Grace, but as long as they were only waiting for the storm before there was real work to do, she couldn't help it. Her attention turned toward the other woman reflexively like a sunflower facing the sun. Grace treated the soldiers of Team One with a certain distance, not much like people she had worked with. It was obvious they knew each other. She asked after a few old injuries, but that was as close to personal talk as they got. Nobody from Team One asked Grace any questions at all. Sal tried to calculate how long Grace had spent with Team One. It had been months, enough time to really get to know someone and build up a rapport on any ordinary team. But for Grace, had it been a few hours, a few days? Sal kept trying to do the math in her head, but there were too many unknown variables. How many missions Grace had been sent on, how many hours of regular burn, how often she'd gone into overdrive. Are you ready? Grace asked her. Do you need anything? We can borrow a bow and arrow for you, or I'm fine. Sal patted her sword from the maitress. It still seemed awkward, not a weapon she'd ever have chosen for herself, but she wasn't going to be picky about using the best tool for the job. Where do you suppose Liam is? They'd texted the rest of the team, telling Asante and Francis to stay home so Team One couldn't take them into custody, but they hadn't heard back. It was possible the tornado was already affecting their phones. It was possible that something Asante was doing had created magical interference, too. Hazards of the trade. He was supposed to meet us here by now, wasn't he? Sal checked her watch, then wondered if it could be trusted. Grace stood up to pace around the fountain one more time. She froze for a moment, then staggered, slow as if she were enrobed in honey. She turned back towards Sal, and the words came out of her mouth too slowly. I feel wrong, she said. Her voice sounded wrong, too. A recording played at an off speed. Sal sprang up to put a hand on Grace's bag to help her sit. Grace, Grace, what's the matter? I don't know, Grace said. She clutched her stomach. I, I think it's passing. Liam came pelting around the corner. Sal. Sal, Jesus, fuck, can anything else go wrong today? Asante's being arrested by the bastards from Team One. Hurry. He raced away again. Sal looked at Grace. I, what? The pair followed him to Shaw's command center, a tent halfway across the perimeter. 
Frances was there, her hands bound in black iron shackles like something from a bad fantasy film. There was a shroud over her head made of the same cloth as the bags Team 3 had always used for books. Asante, though, was free. Her hair crackled with power and her hands shed light as if she held stars in them. Shaw faced her down. If you won't surrender peacefully, she said, then we're well equipped to handle your kind by force. She waved at her troops who were readying an assortment of traps and weapons. Crossbows loaded with bolts tipped with silver, a net hung with barbed hooks. Two of them had drawn swords, and unlike Sal and Liam, looked like they'd had actual training in how to use them. Sal spotted Perry hanging back, quiet. Shit. Wait, he wasn't even supposed to be here with this much magic coming, was he? He could hardly keep it together on a normal day at this point. Sal saved that problem for last. The first fire to put out was the one that seemed to be burning the hottest. Manchi was facing off with Shaw. I can't allow you to do this, he said. He had raised his voice and his face was reddening. Sal was shocked to see him so flustered. I don't see how you have the authority to stop me. Shaw's reply was strangely mild. My orders are very clear. Your orders are very wrong. Ashanti isn't the bad kind of magician, Menchu said. She can save us. She might be the only thing standing between us and the very end of the world. Arturo, none of them think they're the bad kind of magician. It starts out with something simple like love and harmony or a fear of dying, and before you know it, it's blood sacrifices and demon possession as far as the eye can see. Sha pointed at Asante. She's not the first one from the society to be tempted. Sal stepped in front of Asante. Grace flanked her and Liam pulled the sack off Francis's head. Shaw, you've seen what she can do, Sal said. Hell, you've seen her save London before. And you let us go before. Shaw looked uncomfortable at the reminder. Yes, but I didn't have direct orders. There's a difference between suspending judgment and actively disobeying orders. If all of you are set on defending her, I'll have to- You agreed to hold off on arresting Father Manchu until after the tornado. Sal took a deep breath. Give Asante the chance to fight too. We can settle this later, but for now, we all want the same thing. I could just leave here, Asante told Shaw. I could leave and take my friends with me, and you'd never find us again. Then why don't you? Shaw snapped. Save us all a lot of trouble. Because there is always a price, Francis said. Liam was trying to get her shackles off and failing. The portals leave an unstable echo, and to do that here, now, with this tornado coming on? She shook her head. A perfect storm, anything could happen. Like that stopped you before, Shaw said. It has, and I won't do it now because I care about the world, Asante said. I'm not in this for power or personal glory. I want the same thing as you. Forget what the bureaucrats say. Grace addressed her old commander with less heat than the rest of them. You know we're all fighting for the same thing. Shaw's hand shook as she ran her fingers through her hair. Doubt, that was something. Can you promise me she won't use any more magic for the time being? No, Sal said. But don't be a damn hypocrite, you're using magic too. She gestured at the Team One soldiers, still busy strapping on the things that would make them faster, stronger, deadlier. Team One has always used magic. Where's the line? Shaw's mouth snapped shut. Fine, she said at last. Fine. The magicians can fight with us, but if they try to leave once the storm passes, it's gonna get ugly. We'll deal with that then, Sal said. She took a deep breath and turned to Perry. He was wrapped in layers of scarves and gloves, presumably to conceal his unraveling. Why are you here? Grace's candle was stolen, 
Liam answered before Perry could speak. Bunch of wax animals burst in and took us by surprise. Nothing we could do. Must have been that wizard. What was his name? Andropond. Andropod? Antopov, Grace said. I, he's still alive? Her fingers curled into claws. We have to go get the candle back, Sal said. We have to, no, Grace said. There's no time for that right now, even if we knew where to look. I'll stay and fight. We'll deal with the rest later on. Shaw looked troubled. I'll dispatch a few men to retrieve it. This is very serious. Why would you even care? Liam asked Shaw. We always worried what would happen if Grace, um, fell into the wrong hands, Shaw said. She spent another hard look on Asante and Francis, who were slowly moving toward the fountain. Look, you can stay and fight, but that's the only leeway I'll give you. Don't ask me to give one more inch on this. And if you don't go easy when it's time, then it's going to be harder than it has to be for all of us. Get yourselves geared up. We only have, she looked at her watch, another 20 minutes. Don't waste any time. Finally, Sal could attend to her brother. She pulled Perry to the side for a private conversation, or at least as private as they were going to get right now. Go home, she said. You can't be here. Perry didn't meet her eyes. I'll be where I need to be. This isn't just the rising tide. You're gonna have an attack or an episode or- I still get to make my own choices, don't I? No, Sal said. She knew she was wrong, but she had to say it anyway. You don't just get to go around making stupid choices. Perry put his hands on both of her arms and squeezed. I know you're looking out for me, he said. But the world needs what it needs, and I'm not gonna choose self-preservation over everything else. Existence. He paused, his hands dropping to his sides. The thing is, nothing lasts forever, Sal. This was never a permanent fix. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. 
featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolihi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>